following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, October 2nd, 2022, on the basis of Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. In the 14 days that have passed since I last stood in front of you and preached a sermon, Some people have died. I suppose I could begin every sermon that way, as could every pastor who has ever preached in every church in the entire history of the world, correct? People die all the time. But perhaps some of those people who have died in the past 14 days have caught your attention a little bit more than usual. For example, a couple of members of our congregation have had close family members die in the past 14 days. Here in town, the wife of a local school teacher died recently, and at least judging by the hundreds of cars that were lining the street over by Gunderson Funeral Home on Thursday afternoon, that was a death that touched a lot of people. We might also think of the people who have died and the people who will still die as a result of Hurricane Ian down in Florida. But you know, out of all of the people who have died in the last 14 days, there was one death that actually caught my attention more than others. And it wasn't because I knew this person. In fact, I had never even heard of him until I heard news of his death. A Dutch man by the name of Andrew Vanderbeel recently passed away. Except that most people didn't know him as Andrew Vanderbeel. They knew him as Andrew the Smuggler. Andrew the smuggler. Evidently, this man named Andrew had dedicated much of his life to smuggling, to bringing forbidden illegal goods across borders and lines and fences and walls and checkpoints manned by soldiers with guns. So much so, in fact, that eventually he just became known as Andrew the smuggler. And that's why his death and news of his death caught my attention. The idea that what someone does during their entire life on earth could be reduced to just one single word. The idea that someone could actually be known far and wide just by one defining characteristic. It had me wondering, like maybe it would cause you to wonder, if that happened to me, what would that one word be? And if you're anything at all like me, you could probably think of a whole group of words that would maybe be right at the top of the list, words that we would love to be associated with us. And maybe then you could also think of a group of words right in the middle. Not as good as it could be, but it certainly could be a lot worse. And then, of course, you could probably think of an entire group of words that you would want to avoid at all costs, words that you would want to distance yourself from as far as possible. Well, today, as we wrap up our series entitled Wounds That Heal, and as we think of the words of Jesus in sort of this medical surgery metaphor, we might say that today Jesus is looking to perform more than just a minor procedure on each and every one of us. We might, in fact, say that Jesus is looking to perform a heart transplant. Jesus is looking with this parable to take those words that maybe in normal circumstances we would love 
to be associated with us, and Jesus is going to remove them. Jesus wants us to see that they are failing, that one day they will fail entirely, that they need to be taken out and they need to be thrown away. And in their place, Jesus wants to take some of those words that maybe under normal circumstances we would want to distance ourselves from as far as possible, and Jesus wants to transplant them. Jesus wants those kinds of words to become our beating heart and the very thing that makes us tick. And so don't just use your imagination for that one word that you might want to define and describe you. Instead, entrust yourself one more time to the hands of your skilled surgeon. Listen, as with this parable, Jesus teaches us that if our entire life were reduced to just a single word, you would want it to be this. The story that Jesus tells is actually about two men, both of whom he describes with just a single word. Jesus calls the first man rich. And he's not just rich, he wants everyone to know that he is rich. And so he dresses himself in fine linen and purple cloth. He throws a lavish feast for himself each and every day. This is what is sometimes referred to as conspicuous consumption. The only reason for spending this much money is to let other people know how much money you have to spend. And the rich man had very good reason for this. Because if you are known as being rich, it also means that you are smart, you are skilled, you are strong and capable. In fact, in Jesus' day, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. And so if someone was rich, they would also be seen as morally virtuous and good. In contrast, Jesus describes the other man in the parable as a beggar. And so in Jesus' day, he would have been seen as just the opposite as the rich man. He was foolish. He was weak. He was incapable and perhaps even morally evil. This man was totally helpless. Well, almost helpless because Jesus tells us one more important thing about him. Jesus tells us, his name, which is kind of a big deal because this is actually the only time that Jesus ever gives anyone in any of his stories a name. The beggar's name was Lazarus, a name that means God is my help. So for Lazarus, this beggar, God alone was his one and only help, which sounds good in theory, but look at where it had gotten him. Unlike the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, Lazarus was clothed, we might say, in sores from head to toe. Unlike the rich man who had a lavish feast for himself each and every day, Lazarus was so hungry that the five-second rule didn't matter to him anymore. He longed to fill his stomach with the food that fell out of the rich man's mouth and on to the floor. In fact, Lazarus was so utterly weak and helpless that he couldn't even get himself to the place where he did all of his begging. Instead, he needed others to carry him and plop him on the ground there. Now, even if you've never heard this story before, or even if you're not really even all that familiar with the Bible, you can maybe already guess that the rich man in this story is going to turn out to be the villain. And the beggar, Lazarus, is going to turn out to be the hero. Yes, this is the word that Jesus would want us 
to define ourselves, would want us to be used as that one word that sums up our entire life, that word, beggar. God wants us to be people who see our only help as him. Which again sounds good in theory. But the first thing that Jesus is teaching us in this parable is if that one word describes us, if we are beggars, it might seem to really fail us in this life. Being a beggar, viewing God as your one and only help does not mean that steak and seafood dinners are just going to come falling down from the sky under your plate. It does not mean that sports cars and speedboats are going to sit in your garage. It does not mean that the doctor is always going to give you a perfectly clean bill of health. It does not mean that those thunderclouds of sadness and struggle in life are going to hover over your neighbor's house, but they will never make their way over to yours. Having God as our one and only help, being spiritually and internally like beggars, might well seem to fail us in this life. So thankfully, there is more to the story. There's a part two. And in part two, everything gets flipped completely upside down. When both of these men die, everything is reversed. But what's important to notice is that even though everything about each of their circumstances changes completely, the men themselves do not change at all. When Lazarus dies, he does not suddenly turn into this powerful, confident, alpha male who finally laughs last in the end and gets his revenge. No, in death, Lazarus is still very much a beggar. He still needs others to carry him to his destination. Only now, instead of them setting him at this gate where he is going to beg, it's the angels who carry Lazarus to Abram's side in heaven. Lazarus still relies on others to fill the hunger of his stomach. Only now, instead of relying on others, leaving him nothing but starving, he is seated at the lavish feast in heaven and even gets this place of honor. In death, Lazarus does not change one bit. But what changes, what's different, is that the very thing that seemed to fail him in life helps him in death. The same thing is true for the rich man as well. He doesn't change one bit. When he dies, he does not become this humble, repentant person who sees the error of his ways and wishes he could go back and do everything different. No, he is just the same in death as he was in life. He thinks that he is entitled to mercy even though he showed no mercy to Lazarus when Lazarus was at his gate every day. In fact, he thinks that Lazarus exists for his benefit, that he can order Lazarus to come on down and, and make his circumstances just a little bit better. That very same, me first, go get him attitude that served the rich man so well in life is still there in death, only now it does him no good. He is in hell. He is in agony. He is in torment, and nothing is going to change it. This is why... Jesus wants that one word to be the word that defines us, that word, beggar. Why Jesus wants God to be our one and only help, because in death, that is the only thing that will work. We might think of it this way. If I told you that you could take 
your vehicle, any vehicle that you could own, and you could drive it to the Federal Reserve Bank building in New York City, and you could take from that reserve bank as much gold as you could possibly fit in your car. Let's assume that weight and suspension are not going to be issues here. So you can fit as much gold as you possibly can into your car, and it is yours. I'm guessing that before you take that trip, you're going to clean your car out a little bit, aren't you? You're going to take out all those empty Starbucks cups that are sitting in the front. You're going to take out that stroller for your child that you keep in the back. You're going to make your kids take out their socks and their shoes and their books and everything else that finds its way into your car. In fact, you probably will even take out some tools and you will unbolt the back seat and you will take off the door of the glove box and you will tear out the center console. You will want to make that car as empty as possible. When you are trying to fill up a container with something that is pure gold, you want that container to start out as empty as possible. And that is exactly why when our life comes to an end and when we go to stand before our God, we want to be beggars. We want to be completely empty-handed because then God will fill us with the better-than-gold blessings that he has prepared. The very thing that seems to fail us so often in life is the one thing that can help in death. So I don't know about you, but if the story ended there, I might go looking for a loophole. There has to be some sort of shortcut, some sort of hack, some sort of way to trick the game. Yes, it makes sense that being a beggar is going to help us in death, but being a beggar sure seems to be difficult in life. And so maybe we can have it both ways. Maybe we can live our lives trying to be rich and then when the moment comes that when we die, then we'll be beggars. Maybe we can spend our entire life trying to convince ourselves and trying to convince others of just how strong, just how capable, just how morally good and virtuous we are. And then when death draws near, we'll put on those beggars' rags and we will ask God for help. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And even the rich man knew it. There were survivors in this story. The rich man had five brothers, and the rich man knows that they needed to start living differently from how he had lived. He knows that they needed to repent. Seems like a, a virtuous thought on the part of the rich man. It certainly was a, a true thought. We can't just wait to become beggars later. By then, it might be too late. But even up until the very end, the rich man still shows his true colors. He thinks that he gets to dictate the terms by which his five brothers are going to be warned about their way of life. He thinks he can just summon down Lazarus to go to them and talk to them and warn them. And in fact, even after Abraham says to the rich man, well, they have Moses and the prophets, the rich man insinuates that that won't be good enough. In fact, the rich man implies that it wasn't really his fault that he was in hell in the first place because all he had been given was Moses and the prophets and evidently that wasn't good enough. The old saying goes that beggars can't be choosers and right up until the bitter end, the rich man was much more of a chooser than he was a beggar. But this last part of Jesus' story teaches us an important lesson that becoming spiritually beggars is not something that can wait until later. 
In fact, it also teaches us that it's something that won't wait until later. The true character of our spiritual heart, that thing that makes us tick inside, is actually revealed by our attitude toward and our response toward Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, the Bible, we might say. In fact, it would work this way in in pretty much everyday life. You could tell whether someone was a very rich man or a beggar if you put a single slice of bread in front of them. How would they respond? And in the very same way, you can tell spiritually whether someone is a rich man or a beggar by how they respond to the scriptures, to the bread of life. Which is why that death of Andrew Vanderbeel caught my attention. You see, Andrew Vanderbeel was not just a smuggler. He was actually known as God's smuggler. Because the thing that Andrew Vanderbeel spent so much of his life smuggling, the thing that he dedicated his life to and risked his life for was smuggling Bibles. Back in the 50s and the 60s, he smuggled Bibles into countries like Poland and Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. After communism fell, he spent the rest of his life smuggling Bibles into Muslim-controlled countries in the Middle East. And so I thought about that man who spent his life, risked his life, getting Bibles into people's hands. And I thought about people in countries like North Korea, where they risk their lives owning a Bible because it is illegal to do so. And then I think that here, we have shelves and shelves of them. I think about how here, we all have one in our homes. If you don't, take one with you today, please. I think about how here, there are websites where we can access the Bible. There are apps that allow us to carry the Bible with us in our pocket wherever we go, and all of it is completely free of charge. We look around, and the bread of life is piled high everywhere we turn. How do we respond? How do we treat it? How do we make use of it? And what does it reveal about what is inside of our hearts? Rich man or beggar. It really is a a wonderful test. You put a piece of bread in front of someone and you will learn very quickly whether they are rich or whether they are a beggar. But thankfully, when it comes to the bread of life, it does not just reveal what is already in our hearts. It is the one thing that has the power to change what is in our hearts. Because let me tell you, if you open this book, it will strip you of all of that purple cloth and fine linen that we so often like to dress ourselves up in so that we look good in front of other people. Open this book and it will show you that that life that so often seems smooth and healthy and whole is covered in sores from head to toe. Open this book and it will show you that so much of what is so easy to consider part of our net worth as human beings is worth absolutely nothing. Open this book and it will leave you with no other option than to make Lazaruses of us all, with no other choice but to look up to heaven and say, God, help. But open this book and you will see that that's exactly what God does. Over the top of those beggar's rags, he clothes us in a perfectly white robe, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The forgiveness that Jesus secured for us is like a healing balm that has the power to soothe every sore. And net worth for us as human beings, that net worth is only properly measured by the priceless blood that Jesus was willing to pay to purchase us as his own. Open this book and it doesn't just have the ability to cause you to realize the true hunger of your soul. It also has the ability to satisfy that hunger. Which is really good news when you consider the fact that in the next 14 days, between now and when I stand in front of you again and preach a sermon, more people will die. Some of them might be people who are close to you. Some of them might even be people sitting in the room right now. And if and when that day comes for each and every one of us, then this one word, beggar, is not just a word that you want to describe you. It is a word that you need to describe you. But friends, take heart. We have Moses and the prophets. We have the Holy Scriptures. We have the bread of life. And that bread has the power to make even the richest man a beggar. And that bread of life has the power to leave even the hungriest beggar full. Amen. <laughs>